0: This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto.
1: Hello, and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network. And I am Ben Schiller, I'm the features editor here at this company. And Danny Nelson is here as well. Hi, Danny. Hello, hello. And Cameron Thompson is here. She's a Web3 reporter here. Hi, Cam.
0: Hey, how's it going?
1: It's going good. So are you guys into softball? I am. Big time. Uh, I'd play. Well, the big news out of Coindesk this week was nothing to do with crypto. It's that uh, Coindesk now has a softball team. And we are taking on the might of many other publications around the city, including New York Magazine and Vanity Fair. And we have our first
2: upcoming games very soon. So are you excited about that, Danny? Well, I would be if I was going to them, right? I live in Philadelphia. That This is in New York. And uh, as much as I want to make this upcoming game, I will not be able to. I My allegiances are with the Philadelphia Pen and Pencil Club, the Journalist Club of Philadelphia. We have our own league. That are you any good? You know, I, I get it done. I, I'm one of the younger people on the team. So I really throw myself at the ball when I'm in the outfield. and end up with a lot of scabs and back pain. Um, but I can deal with it better than the 60-year-old scan, at least for now. Yeah.
1: So I heard from one of the Vanity Fair guys this week, and uh, he said that he thought that the crypto bros, which is us at Coindesk, uh, will be quite good at softball. So uh, I don't know where sp- they'd get that uh, opinion. Uh, which, interesting kind of comment, right? Why would, you think, would it, why would you think that a crypto bro would be good at softball? I don't know, but uh, it's an interesting point. Uh, Cam, are you uh, coming to the game?
0: I cannot make it to the next game, but I will be at the one after that. I would love to see you all play. Unfortunately, I cannot play myself right now, but I will be cheering on Coindesk. I'm very excited. Excited to see us go up against our competitors online and on the field.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. All right, let's get into it then. Okay, we're going to go inside the desk now. Uh, and we're going to look at some of the stories we've been covering recently on Coindesk. And something that really piqued my interest was this announcement by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And he was making a big play about Bitcoin in that announcement last week for president, and basically signaling his fidelity to the Bitcoin community saying he would like to see Bitcoin become more established and He thought that the current administration, the Biden administration, was being too hard on the industry. And that's interesting as a kind of counterpoint to what we've been hearing from the Democrats, uh, including Biden himself, who's been very down on crypto, and particularly from people like Elizabeth Warren, the Massachusetts senator, who claimed in a recent announcement of her own about her campaign that she was going to lead an anti-crypto army. So it does seem to be this kind of cleavage in the political sphere, which for a long time has been relatively bipartisan on crypto between On the one hand, Democrats being very unsupportive of crypto, and on the other hand, Republicans being much more supportive. What do you make of this, Danny? I mean, do you think this is really about
2: crypto at all, or is it some kind of uh, meta-signaling going on? Uh, I have to think that it's about meta-signaling and the conversion of crypto into a partisan issue. You've got, like you pointed out, you've got Elizabeth Warren with an anti-crypto army, so what do people who are opposite Elizabeth Warren do? They become the pro-crypto army, which... It doesn't, in my opinion, necessarily bode well for crypto. I think crypto will, succeeds when it is a nonpartisan issue. And it just having it, pushing it into these camps means that it becomes something that the parties will fight over as, well, we are the Democrats, therefore we're anti versus we're Republicans, therefore we're pro. That leaves a very little room for a consensus. And as we all know, we have to carpe the consensus. Very true, very true. (laughs) I mean, the kind of opposite argument
1: of that is that, you know, if you want to be taken seriously in DC as an issue, then you have to be politicized. I mean, the only thing worse than uh, someone criticizing you is uh, someone ignoring you. And this is evidence that crypto at least isn't being ignored. What what do you think?
0: I mean, it is true that crypto isn't being ignored, but I still emphasize that it's really unnecessary to have to make it a partisan issue. I think that Over the past couple of years, pre this regulatory crackdown that we've seen over the past few months, people who are Republicans, Democrats, were having conversations about crypto with each other, you know, online, in person. But still, now that there are conversations around it being, you know, Elizabeth Warren's anti-crypto army or Ron DeSantis being pro-Bitcoin, it is dangerous for the future of regulation in that It's going to fall into these party lines where people are going to vote certain ways because they might be more faithful to their party than they are to crypto. And that's where I see sort of dangerous activities going on.
2: And Ben, do you think that this is going to be just some sort of one off or is this part of a a deeper evolution, do you think, in crypto becoming a partisan issue? I think this is going to get worse and worse and worse. I think
1: uh, every time one of these uh, politicians makes an announcement, whether that's for president or for senator or for whatever, uh, then I'm going to be asked what their stance is on, on crypto. And I agree completely. You know, if you're a Democrat, you're going to go one way. And if you're a Republican, you're going to go another way. And I kind of think back to climate change and, you know, wherever you stand on climate change, that used to be a really bipartisan issue. You had people like, uh, you know, McCain, you know, was sort of pro-action and you know, there were kind of a lot of people on the Republican side who were quite pro-action on, on climate. And then it just sort of cleaved into this kind of classic kind of wedge issue where depending on what side you're on, you could predict someone's opinion about it. But, you know, on the other hand, crypto is being taken seriously. And uh, I do think we're going to see some legislation out of Congress in the next year or so because there is a movement to do something about it. So whether that's good or bad, I don't know, but we
2: badly need something. So safe to say this will continue to be a growing issue in the, uh, this election specifically. Like, well, this is not the last we've heard of crypto on the campaign. Absolutely. I mean, just to pick up on that, I mean, Ron DeSantis back in Florida
1: passed a anti-central bank digital currency bill when there isn't even a central bank digital currency in the US uh, in the making, at least not that we know of. So uh, it's hard to think back of a big bill being passed in a major state like Florida against something that isn't even happening. I mean, that, that is just evidence right there of how crypto, or in this case, a CBDC, is being taken into this kind of meta territory without being a substantial policy issue yet. Mm-hmm. All right, I think we've had enough politics for one day. So we cover all kinds of things here at Coindesk, uh, from politics to uh, much more technical things to the future of Web3. And
2: uh, Danny, you're going to talk about something completely different that kind of evidences that. Yep. In my neck of the woods, I'm thinking about a different kind of governance that has to do with token unlocks. Thinking about how the introduction of new tokens into a circulating supply will affect things like price as well as governance processes this week. The Optimism ecosystem is having a major token unlock that will bring OP tokens to project insiders, groups that one hopes aren't eager to sell. So I'm looking at, as we record this We're recording this podcast on Tuesday, uh, Tuesday night tonight. There will be a token unlock, and it will already have happened by the time you hear this recording. I'm going to be looking toward seeing how that introduction of new tokens into an ecosystem affects the price and governance, whether the insiders dump their tokens in the optimism ecosystem or whether they hold on and put them to work in governance decision making. So this could be a real, possibly a rebalance of power if the recipients of these tokens decide to make it that way so cam uh what are you working on at the moment
0: all right so danny's doing that a little bit of DeFi, a little bit of governance because i cover nfts i'm taking an nft approach to this new thing well not really new but you know it's been more popular recently nft lending i am looking into this trend that has been on the rise for the past month i think it's kind of the trend in the nft space that really defined may and it's nft lending so a lot of platforms whether they have been historically normal nft marketplaces where you can simply buy and sell nfts or newer platforms that are specific to nft lending are emerging and there are a lot more that have launched in the past couple weeks such as blurs blend astaria it's another one that is natively nft lending There's also Binance's NFT lending platform and several others that are really capitalizing on this trend.
2: So, Cam, what are some of the specifics that you're looking into?
0: There are a lot of dangers with NFT lending that people like to focus on, such as, you know, let's say you take out a let's say you lease an NFT and, you know, you're paying loans for holding it. And then the floor price completely shoots up, then, you know, you might have a liquidity scare. Or other issues about how these assets are really going to be managed in terms of protocols, having enough liquidity to issue out these loans. So certain ones have created different models about how to establish that, how to sort of do DeFi in the NFT world, because not a lot of these protocols or marketplaces have real DeFi routes that understand some of these risks in terms of lending tokens or you know lending NFTs. I'm looking into how this is going to shape out over the summer. You know, we've seen a lot of activity in terms of NFT lending over the past couple weeks, but I'm not sure if that's going to last. I think that this will be a really interesting conversation to revisit in September after we've seen these platforms running for at least a few months, just to really understand what their value is.
1: When you say there's been a lot of activity in the space, are you talking about company uh, announcements and that kind of thing, or are you talking about actual capital coming into lending environments?
0: I'm talking about both. So not only companies announcing their NFT lending platforms, but for example, on Blend, which is Blur's lending platform, as of last week, about 46% of all NFT trades on Blur were through Blend. So there's a lot of activity within this lending arm, you know, nearly 50%. I think that this number might start to dwindle or it could continue to increase. I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen, but I'm not too bullish on the future of NFT lending. So I am really interested to see what happens in the next few months.
1: All right, everybody, you heard it here first. That's Cam Thompson on the future of NFT lending. So we'll watch this space. Let's get to our
2: next segment. So this week on Carpet Consensus, we are joined by Tim Tully, the CEO and co-founder of a Web3 wallet company, Zelcore. So Tim, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you on.
3: Great. Glad to be here. Look forward to chatting with you guys.
2: Absolutely. So I'm going to get the conversation started off with uh, narrative. Now, narrative is extremely important to everything in crypto, just because in this interconnected world we live in, social media narratives and the public opinion really matters for companies. And last week or in recent weeks, we saw uh, Ledger specifically have some you know, you know issues with its messaging around products, putting aside the validity or the non-validity of those products. I'm interested in hearing from you as someone who's running a company in crypto, how you manage the weight of the public narrative around products and services. Like how much does that factor into decision making and how do you make sure that you're getting the right message across?
3: Well, I think it's really important. This is a great example of how sometimes the product and the articulation don't always match up, right? And I think the interesting challenge for those of us right now in the crypto space is we're trying to thread the needle between the current users of the ecosystem, which are really advanced technical people, and, and walking over to mass adoption. And, and I think the ledger one is a good example of where, you know the people that are in the space today are very committed to the privacy ethos. And you know when they hear some of the words about the potential to have their private keys be uh, shared with others through firmware and other ways, you know a red flag goes up for all of them. I I think for the mass adoption crowd who are a little more comfortable around, I mean, I think they believe in privacy, but they're a little more comfortable with sharing that with others. They they might not get quite as exercised as the first group, right? So how do you thread the needle there? And that, that's That's a really big challenge. But the narrative can get away with you really quick. And I think the whole ledger example is a pretty good example of that.
0: So, Tim, you were just talking about mass adoption. And in a lot of our conversations on Carpe, outside of Carpe, it all comes down to the wallet experience as a huge part of what is either going to onboard people to crypto or scare them away. So in your experience, Within wallet infrastructure, what's the one thing, maybe one or two things that are a little bit more difficult right now for this average user, non-crypto native user to really understand and grasp before they're actually able to enter or interact with the greater crypto ecosystem?
3: i probably boil it down. To, you're asking for two things. I kind of boil it down into two. I think one is most people enter the wallet expecting a banking or brokerage type experience, that simplicity or or that familiarity that they have, that usually stops at the colors matching up to what they're familiar with and ends there. You know, uh, I think the crypto eco- ecosystem has been so aggressive in getting technology out there really fast. They haven't really focused on user interface and user experience in particular. So I think people get a culture shock there when they Okay, now I'm here. I, the colors look similar. How do I do something now? Right. I think the second thing is when people come in here, they expect to have again that banking experience where I I take my cash and I buy Apple shares, and and one is always equal to the other, and that's not the case in crypto. And there are so many routes and paths, and and oftentimes you have to go in and out of your wallet to interact with other whether it's dApps or other things. And trying to understand and navigate, that's really complex, right? And when I talk to people about it and what we're focused on at Zellcore is, I, I think I extend the concept of liquidity beyond just the way we would all think about it. And when there's not enough awareness and there's not enough connectivity, you don't have liquidity. And when you don't have liquidity, you have an inefficient market. And so I think the onus is on the wallets to make it be a more liquid marketplace and so we have to get the user experience right we have to take the complexity out of out of the that that comes with the technology it has to get out of the experience
1: so tim uh, welcome to the show you talk about the challenge for crypto companies of meeting the needs of these two very different segments market segments on the one hand the kind of crypto native user and then the two The second, the the, uh, the kind of non-native user. I mean, do you think that says that we need to have separate products for those two different groups? I mean, people said about the ledger, you know, trouble that they had that they really should have just issued a new product rather than trying to build this kind of more customer-friendly aspect onto an existing product. Uh, What do you think?
3: We talk about this all the time. You must have been listening to our most recent conversation. You know, we refer to it kind of as the OG mode and the core mode, you know, and so we talk talk about this one all the time. I don't know where we're going to head, but I think most, particularly as there starts to become more mass adoption, it's going to be, there's going to be a simpler version and a more complex version or a do-it-yourself version if you want, right? Kind of the Home Depot experience. If you really want to do everything, you can go buy all the products or you can go buy the kit, right? And so I, I think I think most of us will have that kind of offering for the different segments of the market. And the, and the other thing that that I think is really important I talk about this a lot, right, and this is what's wrong with what we're doing in the United States today. We're so focused on crypto finance. The blockchain technology is the next evolution of the Internet. So the war is beyond just finance, right so there are going to be so many different users that come into the blockchain space. And the wallet is the disintermediation tool, right? It's, custody is, is the Web3 disruption tool, but the wallet is the, in, the thing that empowers custody. And it empowers custody for real estate and medical records and insurance and all of these things. And so we're going to have all different kinds of audiences here. We're going to need to have different experiences in the wallet to do that.
1: So, Tim, just picking up on that, I mean, how do you thread that needle between these very committed Bitcoin people who want, you know, ideological purity, they want the kind of full custody experience, and then, you know, the greater group of people, who don't really care about those uh, purity issues. I mean, that seems like a big challenge.
3: Yeah, uh, it absolutely is. And I, I think we're going to uh, have to experiment. Part of what has happened is we've erred too much on the side, so- or you know, particularly the competitors in our space, right, have aired too much on the side of do-it-yourselfer. And I think that's one of the things that's gotten in the way of adoption, right? And so hopefully the pendulum will swing pretty aggressively to the other way. It will all, there will always be the, again, the do-it-yourself option, but I do think there will be the higher level. Um, and I, I know there are others out there like our solution is looking to, uh, we have a, a proof of concept with some AI tools to allow you to kind of so you don't have to know all the routes and paths and whatever. But if you want to go that way, that option will always be available.
2: I'm curious to l- learn more about your stance on how to responsibly integrate AI into the user experience, right? Because we've seen everything from companies rolling out in the crypto space, chat GPT plugins to help guide people through the investment process to, you know, maybe more behind the scenes tooling, such as what you're describing, how do we responsibly approach this technology, given that it's really positioning itself to radically change how we use the internet?
3: That's a good question. I was almost afraid you were gonna ask that. It's, there's a thin line you have to walk with AI. I'm as excited as I am concerned about the potential of the technology, right? Uh, I think in, in our particular case, we're gonna start with as much machine learning as anything else, and try and keep it in a contextual environment within our world uh, before we push it too far. But there's, there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of danger here. And I think we're gonna to have to walk slowly.
1: Yeah, so by slowly, uh, what, what do you mean exactly, Tim? What are your expectations for, you know, the size of this market going forward? I mean, where, where are we gonna be in a few years time?
3: Maybe Ben, maybe I'll just clarify your question, right? You're talking about AI or AI and crypto together or AI and wallets together?
1: AI and wallets together?
3: Yeah, I, I, I think the wallet market is going to be huge, right? Because I really think it is the enabler of custody for the Web3 future. But it is complex and think about all of the, since the medieval times, middlemen have been introduced to be the custodians for different things. Um, whether it was back in the days of the Roman coins and the tax collectors and all these people. And this has all sped up through the thousands and thousands of years. You're putting that all in technology, right? And so the paths for doing the complexity of all those things have to be mapped and modeled and and marked, right? And so there's a really good fit there for, for AI. I also think AI needs data and it needs computing power. Um, and there's a lot of technologies in the blockchain today that are going to provide that at a much lower compute cost than an AWS cloud solution or a Google solution. We have a sister company that that does it, the exact same thing, right? So there's, there's a lot of kind of hand-in-glove fits there. I think the wallet market is going to be huge. Uh, I think AI is going to be an enabler there. There are other places where I think AI is going to be the product. I think it'll be part of the product in the space we're talking about here.
2: Do you think that there's a risk that AI as the tech innovation will crowd out crypto as the tech innovation? Like, at least in the early innings, it feels like the adoption curve for AI is much steeper than with crypto. It's not like one, it's not like AI is solving the problem that crypto sets out to. But when we're talking about radical changes to how people use technology, do you think there's enough space in the public's ability to digest these things for AI and crypto to succeed at the same time?
3: Good, good question. I, I think, look, we're in a really challenging world right now, right? Where there's everybody wants to pick sides and and there's a lot of gloom and doom, right? And, and I think that's why these hype cycles jump up so much. Crypto in 2021, now AI in 2022, 2023. I do think there will be a point in time where people will see what the limitations and opportunities are. And where they're not. And, and that gets back to my point, which is blockchain is the plumbing. It is the underlying system replacement for so many things. Right now, it's the finance piece. And, and I've said on many public places, if you were the manager, this is not the batter you would put up for the first inning, the finance choice, right? Because there's just so many obstacles to overcome, et cetera, right? But it's a nine-inning game with a lot of batters to come and real estate insurance and whatever. I mean, a, another good example would be, I saw today, it's what I love about the space. Kellogg's, the consumer product company, has put in for 15 trademarks for NFTs, virtual gaming tokens, metaverse piece, et cetera. Like Institutions really believe in this technology. I think they're going to believe in artificial intelligence as well. But I think people understand what the potential for blockchain, the technology is.
1: I mean, you kind of dismiss this idea of the the hype cycle uh, as being kind of, you know, people just sort of getting enthusiastic and not enthusiastic about technology. But it does seem like AI is a real threat to crypto in a very material way, which is that, you know, there's less funding going into crypto these days or Web3 because of AI, you know, those venture capital companies, those finance people who don't really care about the kind of underlying ethos of any of this technology, they just want to go where the money is. They are flooding out of crypto now and going into AI and, and, and kind of talented people who came over from finance to crypto are now sort of going again to, to AI. Isn't that kind of a, a long-term material problem for crypto and so just in a practical way?
3: Uh, very, very good point and a very worris- worrisome point, particularly from the crypto ecosystem. You know, A lot of money came in, particularly over the last 24, 36 months into crypto Around the not just the hype cycle, but I also think people believed it. It's a big part of the future. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a the same amount almost exponentially going into AI right now, right? So that is a concern. I do think that crypto has a unique potential funding mechanism, which we've talked about here. You know, this is there's a lot of cold funding opportunities for for crypto projects that there isn't necessarily for AI. Just the nature of the the beast. But Ben, that's a really realistic concern, and it's a real life, particularly when you're in a. I think we're on the cusp of a bull market, but who knows, right? So you know, you got low transaction volumes, you got a lot of challenges, and a lot of projects are kind of getting weeded out right now. And you throw the dynamic there of not being able to get either new VC funding or additional VC funding, you know, beyond the initial round. It's it is a real threat. I I was answering it more on a technology, but the realistic. Funding piece is a really fair point.
1: One thing I might add to that, I mean, I think it's interesting when you compare the kind of crypto community with the AI community, such as it is. I mean, you know, Bitcoin has a real sort of social ethos to it. It's a social movement. There are people meeting up all over the world every day of the week, going to conferences, going to a Bitcoin beach in El Salvador, and, and, and things like that. And I don't get the sense that you know people are meeting up and and being enthusiastic about meeting up around AI in the same way. It's not this sort of social, you know, hip kind of thing to do. Um, it's, it's more of a kind of mainstream tech adoption thing rather than what crypto has been, which is a, sometimes a party, sometimes a political meeting. It's, a, it's more than just technology, isn't it?
3: It is. I also think there's a lot of Gen Zers that see it as their opportunity to get to the place that get at or beyond their their parents, you know, and, and uh, I, I think that's been one of, you know, we've, there's been a lot of discussion about the challenges for current generations in meeting their, the wealth standards set by their their parents, right? And, and I think a lot of people see crypto as that opportunity, right? Particularly crypto finance, but I think others, the creator economy piece, et cetera. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of dynamics at play.
0: So I sort of want to circle back to what we were talking about in the beginning, back to wallet security, You know, with the recent ledger situation and our conversations about onboarding people and figuring out how to do that best, where do you see onboarding going in a way where it still invites people to enter crypto ecosystems, yet it still maintains standards of security? Because this is certainly a pendulum that we've seen challenged recently and something that's really important for a lot of people who've been in the space since the beginning.
3: Yeah. And that's a really insightful question, right? And um it's one we talk about a lot. Our particular, we don't follow the seed phrase approach. We use a hash combination of username and password for the reason we wanted to make it more familiar and make it more, more like the experience that they're they're used to. But having said that, we don't store your private keys. <laughs> we don't store our server. So you're left to your own devices of that. Um, I, I think as this, technology evolves, there'll be more solutions that will come out that will continue to evolve, right, that are really specific answers to solutions, whether it's things like multi-signature, zero-knowledge proofs, account abstraction. These are really technical ideas and solutions to address some of these problems. And I think we'll continue to have those on this password recovery issue and how do, I, how do I have private keys in a trustless environment, but have an opportunity if I make a catastrophic error and throw it in the trash or do something like that, right? I, I think that one will work out. And and I also think as the spectrum moves from the really uh, advanced crypto users more to the middle, that there'll be a little bit more room to play. Uh, and, and, and a little bit with the same level of security, but new technology to make it a little bit more user friendly.
2: Great. I think that's a good place to wrap up this conversation. Thank you again, Tim, for joining us on the show and talking about a walled security and a whole lot more.
3: Okay, great. My pleasure.
0: It's a warm day. You're standing on the deck of a yacht. You don't know whose yacht it is, but it's a very large yacht and the sea mist is breezing over your face. You see a town ahead. Looks like there's some buildings on a cliff. It's Monte Carlo. You pull in to the docks and you get off the boat. And where do you go? You go to the Monaco Grand Prix. And when you get to the place where you have to scan your ticket to enter, you look on your phone and you're looking, where is this ticket? You check your email and then you remember it's an NFT. Hello, everyone. This is Cam's Corner. And we are talking about some very interesting news over this weekend about the Monaco Grand Prix. The main ticket issuer for the event that does all tickets for F1 across the world, Platinum Group, they introduced an NFT ticket component which holders can use to access these F1 races. So not only does the ticket get you access to the actual Grand Prix itself, but it also serves as a digital collectible after the race and can give you exclusive access to parties, merchandise, and additional perks So I found this fascinating because this is such a global sporting event. You know, F1 takes place all over the world. And NFT tickets might not seem like the most natural type of, you know, new ticketing form to introduce for these events. So, Danny, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on F1 doing NFT tickets?
2: Well, I haven't looked into the specifics of that, but I won't let that stop me from opining on the subject. I am only excited about NFT ticketing if they actually have the same functionality of other NFTs, which is to say, you as the owner of the ticket have the freedom to transfer the ticket to other people, irrespective of some internal marketplace situation. So if you're able to take full custody of the ticket and transfer it to other people and the ability to attend the event transfers with it, and you don't have to pay some 10% fee back to the issuer, then I'm interested. Otherwise, if you just ask me, it's just a marketing stunt. I
1: agree. I totally agree. And, uh, you know, this kind of tax that we pay to Ticketmaster and other ugly companies that have no right to that 10%, uh, you know, if we can do away with those companies and be able to buy our tickets and for that money to go directly to the venue or to the artist, then I'm all for it.
0: But don't you see any extended value beyond just the NFT being used as a ticket for the event, you know, using it as sort of an access pass or you know, attending some type of token gated event or having extra privileges such as discounts or brand loyalty associated with that or associated with owning the NFT. You know, is there more utility to this beyond just being able to transfer it like an NFT?
1: Totally. I mean, I think the the potential for community building around events and for people to really feel a part of that event because they have this different type of ticket, I think is massive. But I think the Jury is still out as to whether that's really going to be the case with these systems. I mean, are people really engaging in that community just because they get an NFT?
2: Yeah, and for me, it still goes back to that idea of ownership. Without the ownership, there's no aspect of this that appeals to me. Like, I'll I'll shill the one NFT community I'm in for a second with the utility and the discounts. I have those types of things via Linkstown.com. But I'm also able to fully transfer the asset and all of the rights there into other people without having to go through their systems because I have full ownership of the token. So these tickets with all their utility, that's all great. Those are all things that you can, in theory, do without an NFT. What makes the NFT special and valuable to me is having that ability to own it and then give it to someone else. Right.
0: I mean, absolutely. I think that there's something very valuable about being able to just transfer the asset seamlessly and eliminating the middleman. I mean, at the end of the day in crypto, eliminating the middleman is a big reason why we're here. Just to be able to have that peer-to-peer transaction element makes things a lot easier. And I think for ticketing, that's huge. So we'll catch you next week on Cam's Corner. And that was Carpe Consensus. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Danny. We'll catch you next week, and make sure that you keep leaving us reviews. You know, on Twitter, drop us a comment on some of our posts. Let us know if you have any questions or want to hear more about certain topics that we're discussing. And we'll catch you next week. Bye! Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz. And produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? email us at podcasts at coindesk.com subject line carpe consensus thanks for listening and see you next week